This episode is brought to you by Case Filters. Look, I travel the world with my camera and I can use any photography filter I like, and I've tried them all. In recent years, however, I've landed on Case Filters. That's Case with a K, K K-A-S-E. Case Filters are made with premium materials, HD optical glass, shockproof, zero color cast, round and square filter designs, magnetic systems, filter holders, adapters, step-up rings, everything I need so I never miss a moment. And now my listeners can get a 10% off the Case Filters Amazon page when they visit beyondthelens.fm forward slash case and use the coupon code Burnaby10. That's beyondthelens.fm forward slash case and coupon code Burnaby10 for 10% off your Case Amazon order. Case Filters, capture with confidence. Hi, I'm Richard Burnaby, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Lens, where I speak with inspiring people from all over the world about photography, the arts, travel, conservation, entrepreneurship, and creative culture. In this episode, I'm joined again by landscape photographer William Neal. William makes a return appearance to Beyond the Lens after, it's been about a year now, but this episode will focus on a place that's very near and dear to his heart, Yosemite National Park in William's brilliant new book about the place titled Yosemite Sanctuary in Stone. You can listen to our first conversation on episode 24, which is a lot more comprehensive and wide ranging than this one. William's been a resident of the Yosemite National Park area since 1977 And his award-winning photography has been widely published in books, magazines, calendars, posters, and limited edition prints. In 1995, he received the Sierra Club's Ansel Adams Award for Conservation Photography. And he's been published in National Geographic, Smithsonian, Natural History, National Wildlife, Continental Traveler, Outside, and many, many other publications throughout the years. He's published and authored many books, in addition to the latest, which we'll be talking about, his website is williamneal.com. Neil is spelled N-E-I-L-L. His socials, Instagram at William Neal, Facebook, William Neal Photography, Twitter X at WG Neal. And once again, I tried to get into his head, how he thinks, how he interprets and expresses these landscapes to understand and help you understand how he creates some of the brilliant and visually expressive images in this book. And so, thanks for your patience. Let's get on with it. Here is my conversation with William Neal. William, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Richard. Great to be with you again. I enjoyed our last talk, so I'm ready to roll. Yeah, I explained in the introduction, which you didn't get to hear, that you and I have already done a wider-ranging comprehensive conversation in a previous episode almost almost exactly a year ago by i think we're missing it by a couple of days so this talk will be narrower in scope we can skip over a lot of the career of william neal type questions and focus on your newest book which is yosemite sanctuary in stone but i do want to first establish for the uninitiated your connection to yosemite or the extent of your connection to Yosemite by telling us how long you've been living and working in the area and what's your history there in Yosemite. 
Yeah, well, as a kid, we lived in uh, the Bay Area, and I was born in Southern California. So the first known arrival here was in 1962. And then much later on, I ended up moving here in 1977. So I've lived uh, in the park for about 20 years and now another 20 years or so, just a little further south in Oakhurst, which is uh, close to the southern uh, entrance, but about an hour and a half from uh, Yosemite Valley. So I've been at it for a long time. It's worth noting that you work with Ansel Adams in Yosemite as well. Uh, yeah, I've worked for the National Park Service for a few years, and and I was taking my film in to get processed uh, at the Ansel Adams Gallery. Remember those yellow boxes, right? So I would turn in my film, and the the film would be sent off to Palo Alto where the processing was done, and then it, uh, they would come back, and I'd pick them up. So I started getting getting to know people at the gallery, and and then um, in 1980, I walked in and uh, got a basically got a job offer. My f- great friend Lewis Kemper was working there, and uh, he decided to go freelance, and I needed a job. So um, all of a sudden, I was a laborer, went from a laborer with the National Park Service to um, a staff photographer at the Ansel Adams Gallery. So to, to put it. Uh, a little more clearly defined, I didn't work directly for Ansel Adams, but I worked for his family. So the gallery uh, is run by his son's family, first his son, his daughter-in-law, and now his grandson. And so I knew Ansel through that connection. Ansel ran his workshops in Yosemite, so I got to know Ansel pretty well. But um, So I was exposed to all things Ansel without getting my finger in the developer, so to speak. So you work with him, not for him. Correct. Is there one lesson, one big idea that you were able to extract from Adams that really stuck with you during those years? Well, I think I really learned a lot from his expansive view of photography as an art. So he was, you know, the, the preeminent landscape photographer, black and white zone system. But when he brought people to his workshops, there were a few people there that worked in that vein, but he brought in all kinds of people that were not um, classic landscape photographers. Some were color, some were, you know, we had Jerry Yulsman and uh, people like that that don't fit in the, the landscape mode. So um, the lesson was, you know, there were a lot of ways to be a photographer. And so for my own growth, I saw that and I saw how different people approach their art and I saw how different people uh, had ways to survive as artists, whether some were commercial photographers, some were professors like Jerry. And um, so that variety really exposed me to um, that broad spectrum of photography and I call it my master's degree working there. So I was there for almost, almost five years in total. So I have friends, they're photographers, landscape photographers, and some not only have never been to Yosemite, but vow never to go there because 
Maybe it's partly the crowds in the valley, but mostly they feel like everything that could be done has already been done and there's nothing new to create. I mean, they don't even want to go there and see it. So what is your response aside from what kind of idiot friends do you hang out with? Well, you know, my retort to that, I've heard, heard that pretty often and is that what if Ansel had said that? So there was plenty of great photography, you know, before Ansel and he knew about the different photographers that had already stood in many of the places he stood. So is it difficult to work past the iconic views? Sure. Is it impossible? No, I don't think so. And it's a, it's a, a matter of, um, you know, a certain amount of stubbornness. So I heard people like uh, J- uh, Joel Meyerwitz say what you're saying. Like, well, you know, it's Yosemite. What can I do? I heard Ernest Haas say something like that. Just, just a clarification. I didn't say that. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm. I know it's not you. So, um, at you know, in my late twenties, I found that interesting and also challenging. Um, I thought I could try to find you know my own little niche somehow, and and I loved being there. And the main reason I've stayed is because I I always find things that excite me visually and they don't always work out as photographs, but they are um, energizing to me and, and uh, experiences enough. And sometimes a few good images come, come through. You cited Ansel as an example of, of creating things new, but we could use you as an example as well easily here. Here's something you wrote about living in Yosemite. It has been quote, an inspirational education a mentorship taught by the landscape itself, unquote. What has Yosemite taught you and what's its greatest lesson? Just that experiencing the landscape isn't a a one-off thing where, you know, it's all been done, so why go? It's, it's, I've learned that it's, you know, through its seasons and all my visits and different light and weather and forest fires and snowfall and, you know, that, that it's an ever-changing thing that, that um, um, I chose to be immersed in because it felt good. So behind me on my bookshelf, I have a, a book called Yosemite, The Promise of Wildness from 1994 by Mr. William Neal. And now you're doing another one. Why did you want to do a new book on Yosemite and how does it differ from the one you did in 1994? Well, the short answer is that the other one went out of print after 30 years. That's a good answer. So uh, I had proposed this basic book concept at least uh, 15 years ago and had a contract from Sierra Club Books wanting to do a book that was more a personal selection. And so that was the impetus to do this one that 15 years ago. And uh finally got the nerve to, to try to self-publish one where I was the curator of the images. I was the designer of the sequence, uh, image selection, you know, what, you know, not in the sense of trying to tick off landscapes to portray and just find the photographs I felt were mo- most uh, personal and soulful and, and uh, 
reflected a personal view. And I also wanted to make a book that uh, conveyed, you know, what what Yosemite has to offer in a sense of counter to what you were saying a minute ago about it's all been done or I'm not going to stand where everybody else has stood um, and kind of denying yourself, one, the experience of just, you know, the place and two, um, taking the challenge to, to push yourself beyond what's been done before or at least a little bit different. And also my experience of, of seeing work over many years, I felt like, um, you know, like I did, I think I did in this book, came up with a a way of seeing nature in general that extends beyond Yosemite. So I want people to feel like they can go to the local county stream or pond or something and and um, learn it in depth, be immersed in it over the seasons. Um, whether that means to create a portfolio or not, it's it's a, it's important to me just to to um, have places to experience nature. And after uh, twenty years of living outside of just outside of Yosemite Valley, I moved a little further away, and and I bought a piece of land that had pine trees and manzanita and and uh, wonderful oak trees, and and uh, so I have things right around my my little one acre in the Sierra foothills, uh, where I I photograph you know, things right around me. So in a sense, Yosemite, being in Yosemite, I was spoiled to death, obviously. I mean, I had to drive, to go to work five days a week, I had to drive through Yosemite Valley. It was probably easier back then than it is now. Uh, true, true. Um, but moving a little further away, I wanted to be uh, in a place that just was inspirational a little bit, but just kind of a comforting piece of nature to to live within and watch the seasons come and go. What do you think of the experience of self-publishing? Thrilling and exasperating, and it's um, it's gone much better than I thought in, in many respects. You're working with Jerry, uh, right, with Mountain Trail? Yeah, Jerry Greer has been uh, excellent to work with. Uh, and we both have strive for perfection and it's taken a little longer than we thought but it's uh you know i've just uh, a few days ago saw the f and g's and you know see how that book actually came out and and looking at the images that, that we tweaked you know there's the small things a little you know half stop lighter that image works better a little more detail in the highlights on another um as jerry would tell you I ended up designing a very complicated book to reproduce. So six color, black and white and color within the same book, uh, color and black and white on the same signatures, things that I had no, had no idea would be quite the problem it, it turned out to be when I designed it. Um, but we uh, we wanted the best book possible and it's it's there, it's fab, it's just fabulous. <laughs> I want to focus on a word, sanctuary, which features prominently in your book, both in the title and it's the headline of your introduction. So there are two definitions for the word. One is a sacred or consecrated place, and the other is a place of refuge. 
both of them work. Both of them are relevant. And I do realize that the two are connected historically. But I'm wondering how you meant to apply the word sanctuary here. I think it's open, open-ended in a sense that I, I am describing what being in Yosemite feels like to me. Um, a place of rest and a and a sacred place at the same time. So it's it's mostly that most of the time I would say it's both, but it also is is open ended. I like um, you know meanings that can you know other people will bring their their own personal thoughts and history to that to that word and uh, think of it as a temple or just think of it as a a place to recreate. It doesn't really matter what, you know, highfalutin words you might put on it, or if you just like going for walks or you like fishing or, you know, you might be a climber too, but, you know, it's just um, a place where a lot of people uh, get strongly connected, whether it's recreating or meditation or, you know, cliff diving, which is illegal, by the way, (laughs) in the park. Talk about the idea of familiarity given the time and the personal experience you have in the place. So you're an inspiring photographer and artist, and you can create moving and meaningful images anywhere you go. But the images you create there in Yosemite probably express the connection you have with nature better than some of the other places you visited. First, would you agree? And second, if you do agree, why do you think that's so? Well, I certainly agree. I just think that um, knowing where to be when and what time to drive up to the park and just little bits of knowledge um, help me go where I want to go or, or or where I think the best images might be. For example, I just finished two five-day workshops uh, with Alex Noriega in, um, in Yosemite and, and – uh, you know, people are asking us, you know, where we're going next, and and we never knew. So, a little bit of exasperating uh, answer, I'm sure. But you know, even as we drove, we were the lead car, the two instructors in one car, and and um, you know, even from one spot to the other during one morning, it would, you know, based on the conditions, you know, we had a lot of parameters to consider in terms of, you know, sharing the place with workshop students, finding them great place to photograph um so i'm not sure if that's answering your question but it but it was a it was it shows how um um kind of a, a it shows how much instinct is involved yeah i was just wondering yeah. if maybe it was even deeper than knowing the best places for the best light and perhaps having more of an emotional connection to some of those places that, you know, perhaps your, your trip to Antarctica, maybe you won't have that emotional connection to that place as you do somewhere you've spent nearly 40 years. So underlying all my work in Yosemite, there's that, what you say, that emotional connection. So, you know, it's not, you know, for forefront of mind at any point in time. I'm just, enjoy being there. I see what's coming my way in terms of weather or light. And, um, you know, that there's the challenge of just moving through a landscape and, 
in finding images. And, and you know, I pretty much feel and talk about a lot in my teaching that um, the higher your expectations, the more demands you put on yourself to find an image, uh, the kind of the less your intuition is working for you. It's like, well, we got to be here and we're going to get that sunrise shot there. And uh, just it's being more receptive uh, than aggressive in terms of making images. You have a handful of images in the book uh, from Tunnel View, which I found surprising and unsurprising. Surprising in that it's very unwilliam Nealish. <laughs> Uh, tunnel view, the icon of icons, but also not surprising in that it is a book on Yosemite. And if there's drama and light happening in the valley, yeah, it's a pretty good place to be. So do you have any biases about that location, positive or negative? Is it a complicated relationship you have with it? Or is it just another perspective of the landscape like any other? Well, I'd say it's complicated in the sense that I, you know, I don't want to repeat myself and I don't want to re repeat history. And I have a pretty good library of knowledge of what's been done around the park and my own work and, and others. And, you know, I try to be discerning about which, which ones might be uh, a little more unique. And I've never, although I gravitate strongly toward making intimate images that aren't from tunnel view. You know, I may get out a telephoto lens and like the cover image where, you know, it's an extraction of the landscape that is encapsulates the amazing light and the shapes of the cliffs and uh, may not look like um, many other photographs you've seen from there. So it's a challenge. And, and a lot of times there's, you know, I've worked a lot with one-on-one -on -one students and uh, we go start at sunrise in the dark uh, and the tunnel faces east and that's really the only place to be there that time of day and when it's great it's great and you know we had a day uh last tuesday that was one of those off the chart days and and we were all lined up with a bunch of other people in another workshop and you know it's it's perfectly understandable to want to avoid that but um we saw uh, my fellow instructor and I've seen photographs of students that were based on the, the teaching of, of, you know, finding your own little section of the landscape uh, that, are, that are really not classic tunnel view shots. And I, mm -hmm. and I'm not, a, I'm not afraid of taking them. It's like, this is what I do primarily, you know, smaller scenes, uh, intimate landscapes and in a place like Yosemite, you know, to stick your head in the sand and not photograph some of the epic weather and light, then, you know, that's your choice, but it's, it's not my choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Two points. Uh, sec uh, the first one would be, I saw that image. You just posted it, I think today on Instagram or, is it, or this morning from Instagram. So I did mm -hmm. see that. And secondly, I associate your work with um, intimate scenics, not the big scenics. In fact, I think you have a profile photo that you may have used on OP where you're holding a 7200 lens. And that's just 
that's you in a nutshell right there, right? Extracting smaller landscapes from a bigger landscape. That's what I think of when I think of William Neal. Yeah. And when I, when I look at my Lightroom catalog and, you know, just a couple of times a year, I might look at what uh, percentage of photographs are made with certain lenses. And it's like at least 80 to 90% with a first to 70 to 200, like in the image you saw, and then 100 to 400 is, is even better. Yep. And um, my co-instructor, Alex, has got 100 to 500. And he said, I got to have the 500. I've got to have it. He must and, be Canon uh, too. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's a good landscape lens. Yeah. So you have tens of thousands of images from Yosemite, at least. How did you go about curating images for the book? You know, what to leave in, what was left out? Beyond just choosing your best work, was there more to the selection process? Like, was there a theme? Was there a message you're trying to send? Well, I think just the most personal images. There are images that didn't get in the book that were fairly similar to other images I've seen, so I, I didn't use them. And in the selection process, I used the collections feature in Lightroom and just, you know, basically started dumping, you know, at least a, at least a year ago. And um, I wanted, I went through some gyrations with how much of what to include, but I think it's, um, you know, a fair amount of classic images. There are a lot of four by five captures in the, in the book, but there's, gosh, I don't know if it's half the book, maybe in the last decade. And that's out of four decades four decades plus six years, there's, you know, I wanted fresh, fresh work, but I didn't want to kind of tune out on some older images that, that I feel were kind of instrumental in, in my, in my vision of Yosemite. And some, some of my best selling, best selling Yosemite photograph is, is not an intimate scene, but a winter half dome image. And that's, that's the epic landscape, not the intimate landscape. So, uh, whether people know me for one or the other, I I couldn't tell you. <laughs> but when we get people coming to to workshops, you know, they they want that, um, you know, to pursue the more intimate views. Yeah, I should have probably differentiated. You know, leading a workshop or you know, a private client, you've got to take them to certain places, as opposed to you just going out on your own with your camera to create images. True, but I, I most a lot of photographs are made when I'm with people out in the field, so it's 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 much more common for that to be the case than to for me to be wandering on my own. So uh, the decisions would wouldn't be particularly different. So I think what people want to learn is what I would do. So I, I lead the even though it's you know maybe a couple of key spots like the tunnel, just starting there. Um, the places I take them to places I would go without them. So I'm not sure the, they, uh, they're that separate. So here are a couple of favorites uh, from the book and I, I, I've got it on PDF. And so what I did was hit the arrow button to go through them really quick at first and just wait for something to kind of jump out at me. And then I went back slower the next time, but what jumped out at me were two images after the first go around. The first one was, Red Bud in Merced River from 2021. 
it's got the perfect balance of disorder and order. There's just enough order and just enough chaos, just enough of each. And I think I'm drawn to it because it's very similar to the types of images that I've been making in the Smoky Mountains or near the Smoky Mountains, or at least trying. Red buds in the spring, it's shaded. The adjacent hillside is bathed with light, colors reflected on the water. So it just feels very familiar. And then the second one is the backlit pines. It's a very simple, very simple image, but it's impactful. As soon as it came up on the screen, I was drawn to it. And I love trees. So it probably comes as no surprise that I'm drawn to both of those images. Well, I think the, uh, the red bud image is um, exciting for me just because of the very complex uh, uh, situation to photograph. There's a lot of uh, distractions around the edges that I had to maneuver around and, and the quality of the blossoms. Um, I've never seen as good as it was that particular year. So it's, you know, it's driving by, you know, something like that. This is right by the road and, and you drive by something for a few decades, you, you have judgments. Well, it's pretty awful this year. Keep driving or, or you pull over and, and dive into it. It's a, it's a time of day thing too. There's uh, some reflected light from across the way from a, from a cliff late in the afternoon. So the soft light against, um, you know, some nice light reflecting in the river. Um, you know, the spacing is, is complicated to work out one. This is pre focus bracketing. My, I just, this year started doing that with my Sony. So, which was driving me crazy for years, but, and I could have done that here, but, um, uh, I was able to pull it off. And many times I've been back there and tried to find where the hell I stood to take that image. And I, you know, it's like holding the image up in front of me while I'm standing in front of the subject and, <laughs> and trying to figure out how I, that uh, Rubik cube, uh, what fits where and, spaces in between and you know it's it just came together so i'm excited you like that one that's that's a favorite new new one for sure that's like i said i love trees and i have a feeling that you like trees as well yosemite might be your sanctuary in stone but based on the collection of images you chose i could say your sanctuary is at least as much in the trees as the rock Sure, sure, definitely. But, but within surrounding the trees are cliffs. And so like this photograph, you know, requires that cliff, that cliff. Yeah. So, you know, it's the, the stone part is kind of the, the, the sense of temple, like narrowness of the valley that, that contains all these, you know, bits and pieces like the, in the book, I'm, I'm looking at a double page spread of, in the book from uh, the image that's next to it happens to be dogwood blooming, and and I happen to be um, in a uh, uh, place called housekeeping, and I'm shooting over tents to make the photograph in the middle of <laughs> with you know people all around and other you know campers around and that sort of thing. So uh, you know different things can be extracted out of a 
you know, somewhat developed Yosemite Valley that that you're right in the middle of the uh, the camping scene, and then you know you discover a, a photograph that that sings to you. I've pulled a couple of quotes from the introduction you wrote uh, for the book, and I'm hoping you can expand on them. The first is, quote, the images I enjoy most rely on my emotional response to and perception of the landscape rather than the spectacle of the scene. Yeah. I elaborate just, on that. That's, that's a beautiful way of saying something that I think a lot of people already know. I think it's just a matter of, um, um, for me, a matter of exploration and finding um, the small sections of the landscape that just jump out at me like that red bud. bud. Um, You know, like across the river is Bridal Veil Falls and, you know, all the the icons are all around you. And and it's um, a matter of, it's kind of a matter of looking down and and looking... um, and trusting your instinct about what draws your attention. I think a lot of people, you know, tend to want to be told what to photograph. And, and um, in a sense, they're trusting somebody else's instincts. And that, that can be important to learn what other, how other photographers see. But uh, there's a port, certain point in time where, you know, they see something somebody else did or they, you know, they start to realize that they, you know, where they're, unique vision lies. Uh, so I'm not sure if I answered the question again there, but I wandered off, but that's okay. Feel free to pin me down. No, because I have another uh, that followed that quote. I prefer to make an image that asks a question rather than answers one. God, I love that. Feel free to explain. Well, you know, especially living in Yosemite, and there's all these postcard views that describe the landscape. Uh, and you see the foreground, you see the middle ground, you see the horizon, you see the sky. It's all, all very orienting. And you kind of know where you were. But by excluding things and, and taking some context out by intimate landscapes and smaller scenes, you have the chance to to isolate things and that don't explain themselves right away you know what's the light behind that red bud it doesn't right. it doesn't read it could be the color of the water it could be the reflection um, and the the goal really is just to create photographs that have mystery and it comes to to uh back to when i was in college and my professors pointed me toward Minor White and Wynn Bullock and creating images that, that had mystery about them and didn't explain themselves right away. And, um, you know, in certain, you know, like photojournalism, you're, you're, you want to show things, but you want to, you're telling a story. So it has to be, you know, certain aspects of a landscape you, you need to tell you know but this is just not to you don't want to create confusion but you want to let the viewer have their own their own say about how they read 
what's there, what might be out of the picture, where the light source might be, where the, you know, what's the scale? I love images that don't give you the scale. And that's the mystery part. That allows the visitor to um, explore the image themselves, bring their own um, background to the image and, and uh, you know, it, it lasts longer in people's minds. It's like, oh, now I see something else. Or now it looked three-dimensional before and now, now it looks two-dimensional and, you know, kind of flipping this perspective sometimes if you can do that with abstract, more abstract shots. You alluded to this earlier about being receptive. When you go out with your camera, you really don't look or hunt for images, do you? Because I've heard you say you, you like the idea of being a receptor for inspiration rather than a hunter, more passive than active. Is that a conscious decision you're making, or is that just through years and years of going out with the camera, you've kind of settled into that that place of being a receptor rather than a hunter? Well, there's there's a kind of in-between place that that maybe describes it best where you know when um, the weather might be good or when the blossoms are out or when the fall color is going on. And, and you kind of put yourself where, where things might happen. But um, I'm not against planning photographs in advance, but I, but I, I don't except that I'm just in the general sense, like I said, conditions might be good. Let's see what I can find. And, and so, um, you know, the, that thought is more a analysis of what I've done. It's not like I thought that and think it consciously when I'm working. It's just looking back about, you know, while I walked over here, or I drove to that turnout and went down to the river and, you know, saw something new and, um, and it just seems that the more I teach or I see photographers come to Yosemite with that got to stand here mentality, um, I just like for people wherever they are in nature to to go out, enjoy it, take a deep breath. And the, the therapy value is kind of more important than anything else, really, you know, just to get out in, in the fresh air and uh, enjoy some beauty in the world where Sometimes it's hard to find. You don't feel any pressure to create something. If you go through that today and you don't click one shutter, you're fine with that. Yeah. And, you know, I've, you remember the days of stock photography and, you know, that there's, there were times where I had, you know, things that I wanted to photograph that I thought would sell well. So I, I have been subject to commercial concerns for sure and raising a family and, and, uh, Doing that has been uh, a big factor in those decisions. So, you know, if I had a line of posters that was widely distributed and, and the publisher says, well, you know, lighthouses are hot. So, you know, I went and photographed some lighthouses and they became posters and it helped pay, pay some bills. So um, the, the, I do, I've done that less and less, especially since it doesn't really you know, stock photography has kind of gone by the wayside for a lot of people. So um, it's nice not, not to have those directives, but I've always been pretty good at, at um, doing both out in the field uh, where, you know, I can 
take the wider view at the tunnel, the tunnel that might be good for one, you know, a calendar or whatever the thought might be. And then, and then, um, give myself the time to, to create something maybe more personal or at least try to. In your opinion, what makes a good photo? But before answering that, imagine you're sitting on a rock in Yosemite wilderness, trying to explain it to a young William Neal, budding photographer, circa 1978. Well, I think that um, a good photograph is engaging and, and in many ways simply designed, not, not just uh, totally minimalist, but you know, some sort of s- structure and shape to the image, something that um, I think I learned back in the 70s. Somehow I, I just wanted to create a clean photograph, um, an image that, like I, like I mentioned earlier, is, is uh, engaging and a sense of wonder in people. Like, wow, I never would have looked at that or what the heck is that? Um, and not just, you know, uh, too literal, I guess. But, you know, light is a big factor. A lot of people talk about, you know, light being everything. And, and I'm, a, I'm kind of 50-50 on light and design. I think, you know, having great light means nothing if it's not a well-constructed photograph. So, it's, uh, Is simplicity like a mantra in your head as you're out looking in, or just being receptive to photos? Is, is that something that's, that you are aware of? when you're behind the camera? Uh, not consciously, but I know it's there. Uh, there are photographs I took in college in the seventies, you know, that, um, show everything that I know about doing now when I didn't know why or where or how basically, but that I, I was able to get all the distractions out of the image and find the, the blades of grass that were graceful and as opposed to some ratty clump of grass against the snow, that sort of thing. Um, so I, I would suggest those things to, you know, looking back to myself that, that maybe unconsciously I already knew. You talk a lot about experience, your experiences in the wild, experiences in nature. So this is obviously a hypothetical, but a philosophical question too. If you knew in advance that no one would ever see your photographs, would you still make them? Or would the experience be enough? Oh, I think that it's, you know, it's easy to say it's largely about the experience, and but I think there's a you know smaller percentage of you know wanting to share it. So as a having a degree in environmental conservation and wanting people to appreciate nature, then sharing it's an important part of that. And so my degree was you know I, I got in the '70s, and that's so that's been motivating. Uh, you know, inspired by many photographers, photographers including Ansel, that were in one way or the other connecting their art to their uh, passion for uh, 
nature in general and preservation in particular. Does creating the photograph, the, the camera, the equipment, the gear, does it add to the experience or does it subtract from the experience? Oh, that's a great question. Gosh. Um, you know, sometimes the camera gear can get in the way and, and I find that I want my camera wherever I go. It's like the concept of going on a vacation without a camera just doesn't work for me. Um, so yeah, that's, I guess that's, that's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> answer is take your camera with you. <laughs> yeah. And that, you know, it's, it's a balance of experience and, and wanting to share, you know, but, but I think the experience wanting the experience is, is primary and it, and it leads to, you know, wanting to share it. And I asked Ansel once about basically this question because I was concerned about just making art that didn't, um, didn't change the world and, and, focus on environmental causes or focus on deforestation or pollution or whatever. And, and I kind of asked him, what, what would you do if, if you were me, what, what would you do? Would you focus on your art or would you in a sense think that, that things are desperate enough that, you know, it's not about me. It's about saving the planet, that kind of attitude. And I, he said, you know, make the art and then, see what you can do with it. And Ansel always said that he, he never made a photograph for environmental purposes, but he found many ways to use them that way. Yeah. This is kind of a personal question. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> no, you, you're like one of the most even keeled, always calm, emotionally level people. Do you ever get really excited like do you ever create something in your camera and throw your arms up in the air and do a little dance behind the tripod or are you just all internal all internalized oh no i i have much more emotional swings than i let on <laughs> so uh, you know i screw up a lot of photographs like actually what happens to me is i, I get so excited about something whether it's outwardly or not you know, that I, f I forget things, you know, I took a photograph last week. There was just 360 degree things going on around me. And I was photographing one thing and then turned around. And in the process of doing the first thing I had turned on, I switched back and forth between manual and autofocus. Oh. So I, I was on, I switched to manual focus on a certain shot and then turned around and this light was changing quickly and I turned around and, you know, there's all kinds of other things, you know, around me, um, going on, but, you know, I aimed at this wonderful subject and, you know, I, I, you know, tapped the back of the camera to get it to focus. And I, I was going so fast that, you know, it never focused. And I, I went off to do something else. And so mistakes are a part of, 
a part of my emotional swings <laughs> that you somehow don't know about. <laughs> Hang I'm, out with me. I'm sorry. And I get you know I screw up. Makes me time. feel. <laughs> I screw up all the time, and I I get and I come back and look at my my laptop or something, and I you know I, I'm not happy. I could be grumpy for a, a few hours or a day or two. Who do you see as the buyers of this book? It's filled with exquisite, artistically crafted images. Most are intimate landscapes, as we mentioned, that say, well, some of them really don't say anything about Yosemite. I mean, quite frankly, they could have been taken any number of places. Is this the type of book that a typical tourist would want to buy as a keepsake of their one and probably only visit to the park? Or is the target audience more in the way of art lovers, nature lovers, nature photographers? Well, definitely the latter. And, and the book isn't really going to be sold in publicly except in the Ansel Adams Gallery in Yosemite. So it's, it's for photographers and Yosemite lovers and nature lovers. And those that have been to Yosemite maybe for decades and they may gain a new appreci appreciation of Yosemite that is different than what they'd experienced. And then for photographers that don't know Yosemite well, they may say, I had no idea that those things could be in, you know, almost all of the photographs are in Yosemite Valley. And um, people realize that they're maybe missing things and, and explore a little bit more. But you created the images and you cur curated the images for yourself, not for a particular audience. Correct. Correct. And that's how it should be. Yeah. That's um, I've done a number of books and I'm not always been the editor. So it's, it's been nice to have that full control, which is goes back to your, first question about why I do the book is just to have that kind of final choice on on things including the first yosemite book because i i had a lot of images creep into that book where the publisher wanted a few more photographs of the what this waterfall or that well l cap or half dome or something so it, it kind of got away from me that was you know 40 years ago <laughs> so it's a, it's a more fulfilling experience having complete editorial control yeah, and I I designed the book um, using Lightroom, the book module, and laid it out and yeah. went around and around with the book design and um, and Jerry assembled, you know, what I showed him in terms of those things. Uh, another th really exciting part of the book to me are that the quotes that I found. Um, I got. Uh, permission to use some Ansel Adams quotes. Uh, a mentor of mine, Philip Hyde, the great conservation photographer. Um, his son gave me permission to, to to use a quote, and a great uh, beat poet, beat poet from the sixties, fifties and sixties. Gary Snyder is represented. I, I even had a little bit of John Muir in the book, and then the intro essay by Guy Tall. The, the great photographer and great essayist. Um, <laughs> I was going to mention the, the mutual friend guy who, who wrote the, uh, the, the foreword. Yeah. It's very exciting that he uh, contributed to that. 
Where and how is the best place for people to get their hands on this book? Well, the only place is at my website. So I'm sure there'll be a link available. Um, their pre-orders are still open, continuing to be available. Um, there's four editions. There's a standard edition, and there's three deluxe editions with varying numbers of signed prints available with them. So that's that's been exciting to have that combination uh, print and uh, book uh, offering, and, and the response to that has been fantastic. Can you share your website? Yeah, williamneal.com. WilliamNeal.com. Okay. I thought that was. I wasn't 100% sure. Well, there, there's um, the photo shelter uh, version of it, which I can okay. give you, uh, I guess it's portfolios at William. WilliamNeal.com. And uh, you can pre order. It, it should be coming out any month now, right? <laughs> yes. It's, um, it's looking like uh, after the first of the year. Great. Point. Awesome. Yeah. William is also very active on Instagram. He's very generous in sharing other photographers' work that inspires him. I would suggest you check that out too at William Neal. And Neal is spelled N E I double L, just in case you were wondering. Bill, anything else that you would like to add or talk about before we take off? No, I think. Uh We've covered a lot of interesting territory, and I hope it's uh, given people an idea of my experience in Yosemite and a little bit about how the book uh, came together. And, and hopefully, with uh, if you follow me on social media, like you just said, it's kind of it's kind of a diary of my life there. I, I follow uh, lots of people, and I enjoy sharing uh, other people's work, and then obviously my own work. I have the PDF and it's a beautiful book. I look forward to having the hard copy and putting it right next to the other Yosemite book by Bill Neal. All right. Thank you. Bill, very it was much. Great connecting again. Great connecting yeah. again. Thanks for coming on and chatting. Thank you very much. See you next time, right? You've been listening to Beyond the Lens with me, Richard Burnaby. Thanks to William Neal for taking the time to join me in this inspiring conversation. And thanks to you, of course, for listening. You can tweet me at Burnaby Photo with any comments or feedback. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, a rating on Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'd love to hear what you think about the show, what you would like to see from Beyond the Lens in the future. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, beyondthelens.fm. Here's the truth, adventure, and passion. See you next time. Mm-hmm.